Good morning, church. I'll be reading from Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with the joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of God. Thank you so much for that reading. And good to be here. Thank you for that warm, warm welcome. I have to say, it's not just good to be with you. It really is a gift to be with you. Um, as soon as Bijan and Michelle started having conversations with Reality Church and began praying for you and for this particular church, we were a part of those conversations. And so to be here and to see faces and put faces to my abstract idea of the church is a profound blessing for us. And so thank you. We're glad to be here uh, with you. Let me, let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, every good and perfect gift comes from you. And sometimes the best gift is the perspective that you provide for our lives through your gifts. And so this morning, we pray that as we look into your word, uh, that you would give us more of that, that you'd give us more perspective, that you'd give us greater wisdom and insight into our hearts and minds, the situations that we face uh, as individuals and as a community, so that we might rejoice right now as we look into the future with certainty, with hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. And the people said, amen. Uh, it has been said that the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist, right? I think the second greatest trick that he might have pulled is to convince the world that if God does exist, that life lived apart from him is more delightful, is more favorable than to live with him and to live for him. In other words, what the Bible teaches is that human beings have a real tendency to pursue a life of personal freedom, pursue a life of individual expression, to pursue a life apart from the goodness of God. But the question that I would ask is, what if our own internal logic, what if our own gut instincts actually are wrong? What if there's another way, a counterintuitive way, in which we experience delight and joy and deep satisfaction. I love this, the word that's used here by the psalmist, delight. It, 
It speaks of a kind of effervescent satisfaction. What if our gut instinct, our, our, our sort of modern mindset is actually wrong and, and the best way to, to receive those kinds of, that kind of satisfaction is to live a life with God? What if true delight is experienced by inviting God in rather than shutting God out? David demonstrates that reality for us and he demonstrates it at a time in which most people would be utterly miserable. He demonstrates it at a time where he is experiencing a tremendous amount of trial. He's living a life that's in peril. But what can we learn from that? What we learn, uh, as David recounts, uh, is that God, who is his delight, provides all kinds of delights no matter what season you're living in. Now, life is very complex, and so I have every belief that there are people here that are living in very difficult times. And so I hope that this is a sermon that you can grab hold of. And if you're not living in difficult times, you will. It's coming. And so I hope that this is a sermon, and more importantly, that this passage, this passage, Psalm 16, is one you'll go back to and you'll learn from. Because there's so much to learn. And what I, the, the thread I want to follow here is that in the midst of peril, David says that God has made known to him the path of life. <laughs> Who doesn't want that? God has made known to David the path of life, and it is a path of grace that leads to forgiveness. And what we see here, and I think the points I just want to focus on is that David experiences that path by focusing on his delight, that he's reminded of that path all throughout his life because of the delights that are put into his life, that God, who is his delight, becomes a fountain of delight by giving him all kinds of relationships through personal friendships. And then to be able to continue into the dismay or the confusion of his life, but to do so knowing that the future is one of total forgiveness. Not just for him alone, but that God has in mind not, not just a world of love, but a, a world of utter, complete forgiveness. So we're going to focus on focusing on the delight. We're going to focus on the friendships and then on forgiveness. So first, in times of adversity, Davis, David focuses on his delight. Now, we don't know... Th- when Psalm 16 was written, but we do know why. And I just intimated there. David is in a time of peril. So what can we learn from him? What we can learn is how do we respond when life, is, when life gives us trials, when life presents troubles to us? It has been said that you can live a charmed life, but you're only going to live it for a moment. You're only going to live it for a brief season that is not going to last. So everybody experiences difficulty. You've been going through the life of David. You know he's experienced difficulty. Right? But where is David now? Right? David, you could do a movie about all kinds of seasons in David's life, but where's David now? David, in this particular psalm, he's writing from a place where he's no longer a boy shepherd. He's no longer sort of the, the king in wait who's always on the run. David, in this season of life, is a, is a king who is tested and he's tried. He's a, a king who is, you might say, seasoned. And he's settled. And what we see there in in verses 2 and 3, they indicate that despite those things, David is under a tremendous amount of political pressure. 
that he is facing adversaries from outside and from within, adversaries in the surrounding nations and adversaries within his own court. Um, and you know that when you're under political uh, oppression or pol you're facing political adversaries in that particular time and place, what that means is you're under physical threat. So David is, is facing the worst kind of circumstance that a king could possibly be in. And you would imagine that as he's journaling, that, he's in his, that when he's in his quiet time with God, when he's putting pen to paper or however he wrote in that particular time, that he would express all kinds of anxiety in this passage, that he would talk about his fears and his doubts and crying out, where are you, God? That is not what he does here. He is, in this passage, he's unshakable. He writes with all kinds of hope. And I say that, David is, that the Lord is David's delight because that's how he's experienced by David. Listen and look in the passage if you have it there. David says, uh, because of the Lord, his heart is glad. His words are clearly hopeful. He experiences a fullness of joy. He knows a pleasure that will not end. He says, anything good of my character, anything good of my life, that's to be attributed to God. So God is not just David's delight, but what we learn here, and I think what we need to take away, because it's so easy to forget when, when the heat is turned up on our lives, is that, that what David does in the times of trials is he focuses on the Lord. Look in the, in the passage, he says, I have set the Lord before me. Over time, David has learned this very important fact. I've set the Lord before me. And then what does he say in verse 1? You are my safety. In you I take refuge. Now why does he say that? Because when in times of conflict, those particular things that, that we've built up, those particular things that we've earned, think about this as a faith and work psalm. David is talking about his job. He's talking about his life. And so the things that we've earned, the status that we have, the, the, the things that we've built in times of adversity, all of those kinds of things, they can be taken away. Maybe you have a promotion coming your way. Maybe there's a relationship that you're trying to build and, and now it's in jeopardy. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's your dignity, your name, any power that you might have, might have accrued. And when David says, in you I place my safety, you are my safety. In you I take refuge. What he's, what he's saying is, it's not in my wealth. It's not in my fame. It's not the fact that right outside this comfortable and secure castle, the nations are singing songs that they've written about me. All of that stuff can go away. I put my trust in the Lord, and the Lord is my safety. I set my sights on him. So what, is, what do we see? He's focused, right? Now, focus is not a new practice for David. It's an old practice. And you know that. You've been going through his life. And so what do we learn from the life of David? That from an early age, his heart was set on God. It was a gift, a supernatural gift. From an early age, he was set upon by God. And from an early age, he experienced adversity that most people don't experience, right? From an early age, he says, by the power of God, I killed a lion and I killed a bear. That's not a metaphor. David's flock was attacked by the power of God. He didn't panic. 
and he killed with his bare hands a lion and a bear. And that shaped him, that formed him, so that when Goliath comes uh, to Israel and insults God, the weakest and youngest person in Israel has the most confidence. He set his sight on the Lord even then. And what I think is actually David's greatest battle is when his life is on the brink of self-destruction. He's in a pit of, of despair. He's depressed. You can only imagine that the kingdom is on the precipice of, 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 of destruction. And what happens? Nathan, a prophet, comes to him after he's committed adultery, after he's had his best friend murdered. And a, Nathan, the prophet, comes to him. And what does he do? He sets the Lord before him. And in seeing the Lord before him, David is able to focus and say, I repent of my sins. Before you and for you alone have I sinned, God. And so this is not a new practice. This is an old practice. In times of trouble, David sets his face to God. Uh, because God is his delight. Now, here's what I think is how do you say this? God is his delight, but here is, here's what moves a heart. It's one thing to delight in one person. It's another thing to know that that person delights in you too. See, the grace of God is that it's not just that David looks to him, but in being shaped by, by the glory of God, by being shaped by the grace of God, David discovers that God delights in him too. Now, that's not just uh, poetic. Uh, Psalm 17, which is a poem, sorry. It, maybe it is poetic. Uh, Psalm 17, David says this, keep me, as the, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings, God. Second uh, Kings 19 says, uh, God says uh, to Israel, as the Assyrians are about to, to take Jerusalem, uh, God says this, for I will defend this city to save it for my own reputation and for the reputation of my servant, David. See, God delights in David too. And that's why David can say, he counsels me at night. He comes to me in my most vulnerable and he speaks truth into my life. My brain is always working and God is always communicating to my heart and my soul. I know he delights in me too. Now, of course, it's hard for us to think that God actually delights in a particular individual. You know, many of us have an impression of God that is big and scary and intimidating. And you can't imagine that these two ideas can be brought together, can be held together. But they, they can. And I, on some level, know this from personal experience. My father uh, was a very physically intimidating guy. He looked like he broke thumbs and collected money for a living. He was tough. He was a construction worker. He had a grimace. Um, when I was in sixth grade, I was at a basketball practice, and my dad was at this practice, and my teammate came over to me. He said, don't look over there. There's the meanest-looking guy I've ever seen. And I didn't even have to turn around. I just knew my dad was behind us. And, of course, sure enough, he was. But here's the point. Here are two kids looking at the exact same thing. And one is a stranger, and the other is a son. And the stranger looks at that, like, physically scary person. 
And all they can see is the fear factor. All they can be is intimidated, right? The power, so to speak. But the son sees all of that in everything else. The son looks right through that in a sense and says, this is the one who gets up every morning and goes to work for his family. This is the one who's been faithful to uh, his wife for how many years? This is the one who shows up as his children's practice, who dotes on his children, who delights in his children. See, those things can be held together. Those things can absolutely be held together. And they are, and David knows that uh, perfectly well. From a very early age until the present, David delights in the Lord, and in times of trial, he focuses on that. And, be, and when he focuses on that, as he has focused on it his entire life, he was formed because he knew that there was delight in them. So, in the midst of adversity, particularly at work, where do you turn? Where's your focus? What do you become like? Who do you become like? Questions to ask ourselves. The second thing that I want to look at is the friendship that God provides. God is David's delight, but what's more, he provides for him a fountain of delight, which means he's always uh, producing new, new ways for, for, for David to experience his joy, for David to experience his favor, for David to experience the confidence and the assurance that comes when you're in a relationship with God. And he does that primarily, not primarily, but one of the primary ways that God does that is through friendships. And we know that friendships are one of the most important aspects of our lives. Friendships just transform us. They take us from one degree to another. Where would we be without friendships? You know, honestly, friendships are so powerful that we're probably more scared about friendships than we actually really know. We probably don't even recognize the power as individuals and as a community that friendships actually produce in the world. There was a, an article in my hometown paper, uh, the New York Times, I have a big hometown, uh, <laughs> just last week, and it was, a, it was a, a headline that I loved and hated because what it said was, is that this new study came out and what they discovered was that friendships across socioeconomic boundaries actually works to, to fight poverty. And so you can imagine why you hate a, a title like that, you're like, how can we not know that? Already, Do we really need the times or some study to, to do that, right? Like, have you read Acts 2, right? And yet, it's so helpful because we need to be challenged. We need to be challenged by the kinds of friendships that we actually have. And David was one uh, who had tremendous friendships. But let me just read this quote from David Brooks's article in which he's interacting with this. When he's interacting with the idea of friendships and how important friendships actually are. Um, this is what he says. He said, friendships, according to Brooks, has a transformational power because your friends are not just by your side, they get inside you. Entering into a friendship can be a life-altering act, and entering into a friendship with someone different from you can be life-transforming. He quotes a philosopher, Alexander Nehemas, uh, who argues that when we enter into a friendship, we're surrendering our future selves to that relationship in part because the friend may call forth parts of ourselves that don't even exist yet. Now, where is this, how is this in relationship to the passage? In verse 2, 
David says this. He says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in, in whom is all my delight. And on, he's speaking on two levels. On one level, he's saying, the grace of God doesn't just work in mine. I see it at work in others. And I see them, their lives are not that different than mine. They're full of foibles and faults. They're in need of forgiveness. And as one person who's looking out into the church that needs so much help, he is saying, I love you. I love you because God loves you. Sometimes I only love you because God loves you. But you're my delight. If, if you're his delight, you're my delight. We're one and the same. We're not just a nation. We're not just a community. We're the same body, Jesus says. Right? Paul says. So he says, I delight in you. And yet at the exact same time, he is talking about a nobility that the courts of David don't recognize. See, David is surrounded by a community of people and they have various forms of of spiritual experience, probably of faith in, in Yahweh and so on and so forth. And he is saying, he is saying the nobility that I'm talking about is a nobility that, that doesn't recognize the power structures of this world, that doesn't recognize what's elite in this world. The, the relationships that I am championing are not based on vocation or geography. They're not based on status or wealth or how you look. They're not based on any of those kinds of things. David says... By the grace of God, a true nobility rises to the surface. And that is a nobility that creates diversity of friendships with people that you may have nothing in common with save for the love of God. Look at David's friends. You know, we don't think about it this way. It must have been so weird for David to have friends like Samuel, this old old man who comes and takes him under his wing and says, and for years says to this poor shepherd boy, I'm going to track with you and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to, I'm going to shield you from the power structures of this world because God has anointed you. And I'm going to put my life be, be in, uh, between you and those who want your life. And David must be going, you're like 70 do we have to spend all this time together? It must have been weird, awkward. And he comes along, Jonathan, who's a prince, right? Who should be his rival. And Jonathan really does, in terms of his friendship, in terms of his relationship, it gets inside of David, right? His soul is wed to the soul of David, right? They become friends unlike any other. How awkward that must have been to know that this man's father wants to kill him. And yet, time and time again, Jonathan, in the most interesting, nuanced way, is protecting him and honoring his own father. It must have been so, so strange to, to be in a, a relationship like that. Or Nathan. Nathan who comes to him and can say the most beautiful things and can rebuke him also. See, all of his life he had this diversity of friendships that everybody would actually want and need. But how... How strange, in a sense, it would be to look upon that kind of a community. When I first became a Christian, uh, we had people coming into our house, part of a community group. We were all kind of learning and growing together. And there were people who were in the know, people who didn't know. We were old and young and, and every different ethnicity there. And we were all kind of just trying to figure this whole Christianity thing out. And so we would have this Bible study, in a sense, and then we'd go to the diner. And we'd hang out. 
And if you looked around the room, you could say, oh, those guys are, that's a, those are, this is a community because they're all, they all work together. Or they're a community based on their nationality. Or they're a community based on the fact that they all like a particular genre of culture, so on and so forth. And somebody came up to, to us at that diner as I was paying. And she said, how do you guys all know each other? We were so awkward and weird looking. And I would have friends who would come up and say, why do you hang out with this guy? Or this? why do you spend time with each other? And I could just say, I don't know. <laughs> we have one thing in common, and that we delight in God. And we have a powerful sense on our heart that God delights in us too. And then the origin of our friendship is based on that particular delight, and the direction of that friendship is, is towards grace. So that's the community that, that's the fount of delight that, that uh, David began to experience. That's the fount of delight that the church is supposed to be. You know, they say that you are the aggregate of your five closest friends. That you are the average of your five closest friends. Now, some of you are going, I got to do some editing in my life. Um, they've been dragging me down for years, right? Those kinds of anecdotes, though, they all come out of a culture that's striving towards success or a version of success, right? And so they say, you got to be around smart people. You got to be around driven people. You know, you got to be around people who who are, you know, go-getters, so on and so forth. It's not the community that, that the gospel, that's not the community uh, that God is actually talking about. See, the origin of the friendship is not about vocation or nationality or any of those particular things I said. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. Um, I have a friend who moved to London, and he, he started working at a particular church. And... We have that kind of friendship. We have a kind of a weird friendship because I'm 15 years at least older than him. And when we first started working together, he was my intern. And yet, <laughs> but here's, here's the thing. I was older, um, I had more hair, and I was the boss. But I was Timothy to Bajan's Paul. If that resonates with you. Uh, he, was, he was somebody that even though he was younger, I looked to to lead in many, many ways, and I still do now. And there's a place in Paul's letter uh, to Philippians, which is this book all about joy, where he says in the third chapter, he says, it is good and safe for me to tell you these things. And what are these things? The things that he's telling him are not just the joyful things of being in, of having fellowship, but the, the critical things that you and I need to hear as, as fallen, broken people. And Paul says, but it's good and it's safe within a community of grace to tell you these things. And as Bijan intimated, over the last year, we've gone through all kinds of trials professionally, personally, we got married, so on and so forth. We have children. And one of the things that Bijan and I always talk about as we've shared our lives together, as we have, uh, you know, all, that, all the good, good and the bad, 
uh, when we hold each other accountable to particular things. It is very common in our text messages to write GNS, good and safe, because it should be good and safe within Christian community. And I would imagine that's so embedded in the two of us that it, I can't imagine he, that the community that he wants to lead here isn't one in which it is good and safe by God's grace to be able to walk together, to be able to hold each other accountable as friends so that you not just recognize the origin of your friendship is the delight of the Lord, but the direction of your, your friendship is growing in the grace of the Lord. So the third point I want to bring up is the future of total forgiveness. David says, I, you have made known to me the path of life, and that is a path of grace, and that is a path of forgiveness. And as David is talking in the latter part of this passage, he's talking about something that's going to happen, but that is already happening. He's talking about how God is going to restore things, and his, not just is he going to be forgiven, but his whole body is going to be restored. He's talking about a world in which the sin of our lives are so covered that our skin and our bones are actually going to be restored. All of life is going to be restored. You know, Jonathan Edwards says that heaven is a world of love, and I think what that means is we can say that heaven is a world of absolute forgiveness, and that's important for us because it's hard to forgive. It's hard to forgive in communities. And forgiveness is a little bit like uh, experiencing heaven and hell. Because when you don't forgive, when you isolate somebody, when you refuse to uh, you know, extend grace to somebody, you put them in a kind of hell of isolation and coldness where they feel less, uh, less human than they were created to be, right? And when somebody does that to you, you feel that too. But when you forgive somebody, or when somebody forgives you, you're free. It's all been lifted. That's a taste of what heaven is going to be like. It's just a taste of what heaven, heaven's going to be like. But this is why I say your future, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, your future is forgiveness. Which means that by the end of your life, you and I should be forgiving machines. Not machines. We should be forgiving people. In the Lord's Prayer, embedded in the middle of that passage, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or forgive us our sins as we forgive our, uh, those who sin against us. What is Jesus saying? He's, he's looking to the disciples. He's saying, I'm teaching you this prayer. This is my prayer for you to learn. That's the Lord's Prayer. I'm teaching this prayer because I know you have a hard time forgiving, but there's going to come a day where you can say with a straight face, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sinned against me. I forgive now. I move through life as an agent of forgiveness in the world. I, don't, I am making heaven on earth by doing that. And so you can know if you have a hard time forgiving, and we all do, Jesus is prophesying for that you you and I have to be, we ought to be, it's our responsibility to be agents of forgiveness. You know, every human being in every culture longs for forgiveness. We long for it. And, you know, Hemingway doesn't say it best, but I think it's a beautiful story in his, in his, in his book, uh, or it's his short story called The Capital of the World. 
It's a story about a father and a son, and Paco, it takes place in Spain, and Paco is the son, and, and the father, and like teenage sons and fathers, they have some tension, right? Because the son wants to go and live. He wants to go and be free. He wants his father to get off of his back. So he wants to go to Madrid and be a matador and live the life. So he leaves his father. But the father pursues him to, to Madrid, and this is a pre-technological world, of course, and so the only way to find him is to put an ad in the paper. And this is what the ad says. He says, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. And then Hemingway writes, The next day at noon in front of the newspaper offices, there were 800 Pacos, all seeking forgiveness. Oh. Paco. We're all Paco. We all need forgiveness. We all desire forgiveness. How do you know that God delights in you? That he moves heaven and earth to bring about forgiveness. That he provides a friend, not in David, but a king who's greater, who delights in you more fully, who is willing to have a relationship with where he really lays down his life, where it is good and safe for you, even though it was not good and safe for him. That's Jesus. And by the power of his resurrection, Jesus is able to say, listen, my friendship is such that I don't just walk alongside you, I'm in you. And if you are in me, everything will be restored. You'll know, you know my delight now. There's nothing compared to what you're going to experience. This is a faith and work psalm. So how do you take that into work? How do you take that into an adversarial relationship at work? A couple of ways. You need to have the assurance. You need to have the assurance of what, who God really is. It can't be on the back burner. David did not live a life with God on the back burner. You know, the scariest passage, I think, for Christians is Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How do we avoid that? One way is to do what David does, is to write down and reflect and, remember, and to remember what God has done and to write down and reflect and say, I, my life is about making memories with God in which he knows and I know that we're known together. It's not about walking in perfection. It's not, like, it's not about living a lie that, uh, that I'm a good person through and through. Listen, there is more freedom for us as human beings to be known as forgiven people rather than good people. Adam was a good guy and it lasted about 10 minutes. How much freedom do you have in, in Jesus? You are free to fail. And journaling and writing psalms and these kinds of things, it's all about saying, I am living my life making memories with you, God. I'm living my life making memories with you, Jesus. As you move through your, your, your peril, as you move, if you encounter people that are seeking to harm you in the way that they're harming David, let the, let the Lord protect your name. Let the Lord protect your name. He can do that. He can do that. Put your focus on the Lord 
and think about his ways, his will, his method, you don't need to defend your name because the Lord will defend your name. So that's my time. I want to be careful or I'll be in peril myself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you teach us to set our face towards you, set our eyes towards you, not just in times of peril, but in the good times too. Thank you, Lord, that you have made yourself known in Jesus, that you offer forgiveness. Would you create a community of forgiveness here at Reality Church London? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.